This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Well, good morning to you all. My name is Will. I'm the youth and college pastor here at Church of the Resurrection. And I'm curious this morning, have you ever had a, a mountaintop experience? Kind of an epiphany moment. Maybe you, you went on a vacation, you went on a trip, you got away from the, the, the distractions and the pressures of life, and you just had this clarity this clarity about what you're living for, what your purpose is, what's really important in life. And you said, when I go back home, I want to make some changes. Or maybe it was a, a mountaintop spiritual experience. Maybe it happened when you were young. Maybe on like a, a mission trip or youth retreat. Maybe it was here during Holy Week and you had just this, this sense of closeness to the Lord this clarity about the truth of the gospel. All these things are true, and they make all the difference. There's some common features to experiences like these. I mean, one is that they're often unexpected. You know, if, if, you, could, um, if you could plan on it, it would feel contrived, but this feels kind of chance, but chance in a, a good way. They're often emotional, that, that it's not just an intellectual thing, but you feel it deeply in your heart. They're often communal, it's an experience you share with others, this shared sense of, of purpose. And then finally, how about this one? They end. Every mountaintop experience, every mountaintop spiritual experience ends, and life goes back to normal. And that can be painful. That can be disappointing, right? Because in the moment, you felt like you wanted this to last forever, and indeed, it felt like it would. And then life goes back to normal, and you feel kind of jaded. You're like, what was the good of that experience? What was the good of those commitments I made in that moment if I'm still the same person as I was before? And those are questions that I wonder if Peter asked after his experience in the story that we read this morning in Mark chapter 9. If you're not there in your pew Bibles, I encourage you to open up there to Mark chapter 9, the story of the transfiguration that we read every year on this last Sunday of Epiphany. Peter goes up on the mountain with Jesus and, and two other disciples. They have this powerful, amazing, unexplainable spiritual experience. And it's, it's a high point in Peter's life because he's just confessed, you know, that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one of God. I mean, this is pretty good for Peter. He, and then he gets chosen to be the, kind of the top three to go and have this experience. And yet, not too long later, Peter is going to be standing by a fire. And somebody's going to ask him, do you know Jesus? And Peter's going to say three times, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. What good is a mountaintop experience if afterwards... We're still the same person. I think that's one question we can bring to this passage, especially as we look toward Lent and the journey to Holy Week. So my first point this morning is this, that the gift of a mountaintop, mountaintop moment, is vision. The gift of a mountaintop mo moment is guiding vision. Look at this story, the, the transfiguration. It shows up in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which tells us this is a big deal. This is a big event in the life of Jesus and his disciples. 
Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain with Jesus. They watch as he's transfigured. That word just means transformed before their eyes. Gospel writer Mark says that Jesus' clothes became radiant, intensely white. These are words that are used to describe the appearance of the stars or of like a, a really shiny metal. I mean, things that humans don't manufacture, right, that come from, from God himself. There's, these are words to describe the ancient of days in Daniel chapter 7, that, that the clothes that God himself wears. So Mark's going out of his way to say this was a supernatural event. The clothes were white as no one on earth could bleach them. And you wonder, what's the big deal? Why are Jesus' clothes shining like this? And the story gets a little stranger. Jesus, shining brightly, is joined by two others. Elijah with Moses, talking with Jesus. You say, that's so odd. Why do Elijah and Moses show up in this story? Well, when you're reading the Bible, one, th one thing that you can do is if you come across something strange, dig into it because it's probably there for a reason. And if you figure out why that strange thing is part of the story, it'll open up the whole rest of the story. So let's focus on, on Moses and Elijah. What are they doing here? Well, the reason they're here is they're showing continuity with what God has done before. Moses and Elijah are here to, to kind of co-sign with Jesus and say the ministry of Jesus, it's not just this, you know, random thing that God decided to do, but it's right in line with his faithfulness all the way from Moses through Elijah now to this present moment. And you might remember that Moses and Elijah, like the story we read this morning about Elijah, Moses and Elijah are both mountain climbers. They've both climbed a mountain in fact, hundreds of years apart, they went to the same mountain, Sinai, or as it's called in 1 Kings, Mount Horeb. And they went there for the same reason, to meet with God. In Moses' story, he climbs up the mountain, and the people are watching, and when they look up, they see this terrifying storm, cloud and fire, physical signs of God's presence. And Moses is there for 40 days and 40 nights, and it was on the seventh day that God spoke to him. Well, notice in Mark chapter 9, it was after six days that Jesus brings his disciples up onto the mountain, meaning for Jesus too, this is the seventh day. Moses goes on the mountain and hears God give this promise of the covenant, this promise to live with his people to be faithful to them. A mountaintop for meeting God, for seeing his glory, for hearing his voice. Now, Elijah's story is a little different. Elijah's, he had this incredible mountaintop experience. I don't have time to get into it, but that was on Mount Carmel, where God showed up in this big, fiery way. But after that experience, Elijah is so afraid He's so burned out, he's so lonely, he's so weary that he just wants to die. He says, God, isn't this enough? Haven't I done what you've asked me to do? And God meets him and feeds him. And Elijah journeys for 40 days and 40 nights to the same mountain, to Sinai. And again, there appears this terrifying storm, wind and earthquakes and fire. But the Bible says the Lord wasn't in any of that. 
the Lord was in this low whisper. And he says, Elijah, you are not alone. And I am still faithful to my promises, still faithful to the covenant I spoke to Moses. Listen to my voice. Keep doing what I'm telling you to do. A mountain for meeting God, for seeing his glory, for hearing his voice. So can you see the significance now that Moses and Elijah are back on a mountain? Only this time, they're meeting with Jesus. And this time, they're seeing the glory, not of creation swirling around them, but they're seeing the glory revealed and emanating from Jesus. And they're hearing the voice of Jesus as they converse together. And in case there would be any doubt for the disciples, a cloud overshadows them, a cloud like the one that's appeared before, and the heavenly voice speaks and directs their attention back to Jesus. And the Father says, This is my beloved Son. Same words spoken earlier in Mark at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The message is clear. Do you want to meet with God? You want to see his face. You want to converse with him. You want to talk to him. Then look to Jesus. Continuity with the past, with God's faithfulness. The gift of the mountaintop is vision. And in the Gospels, this story, this event, always happens in the context of the discussion that the disciples and Jesus have about who Jesus really is. Is he a great teacher? Is he just a great teacher? Is he just a prophet? Or is he something more? And Peter is the first person to say he's the Messiah, but even Peter can't see the full picture. He needs this experience that Jesus is not just the Messiah, he is the Son of God who shines with God's own glory. To speak with Jesus is to speak with God himself. All of the ministry of Moses and Elijah was pointing forward to Jesus. And so we ask again, what's the point of this mountaintop experience? It's a vision. It's a vision of the truth. It's a vision of what truly is and what truly will be. And that's why when you have a genuine mountaintop experience, you just want to hang out there forever. Because you're getting this insight. This is, this is the way life is meant to be lived. And just because life goes back to normal doesn't take away from the significance or the gift of that vision. Yes, Peter will soon fall away. The vision alone, this experience of God alone is not enough to prevent that. But Peter will hold on to this experience. And later in 2 Peter chapter 1, He'll write, look, we didn't make this story up, speaking about this moment. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John, who was also there that day, will later say about the entire time that he spent with Jesus, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Even years later, this vision guides them ministers to them, helps them put the pieces together as they understand who Jesus is, especially in light of the cross. There are times when your 
experience, your faith will just have absolute clarity. And there will be other times when you don't see clearly, when the doubts press in, life feels difficult, when the gospel, the good news, just doesn't move you like it, like it did once. Don't be surprised. Life is full of those mountains and valleys. Don't be surprised and don't dismiss those mountaintop moments. Hold on to the clarity that you were given and let them be a guide to you in the valleys of life. This is my second point, because the vision of glory is realized, comes to fruition in the valley. The vision of glory is realized in the valley. You think back to Peter and his response here. I mean, Peter has no idea what to say, but God bless him, he just says something, you know? So he's seeing all this, and he's like, I mean, yeah, it's good to be here. <laughs> and truer words were never spoken. And then he's like, uh, we should probably do something. Uh, um, let's build tents. I'll build a tent for Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and we'll just, we'll just camp out, right? It's good to be here. Now, Peter's mind goes to action, but this, this moment isn't for Peter to do something. It's for him to receive something. God speaks from the cloud, and a cloud overshadowed them. A voice comes, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then it's like a mic drop moment. Everything goes back to normal. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. I mean, can you imagine walking down the mountain in the debrief that the disciples would have loved to have? Hearing Jesus tell them, don't, don't tell anyone what you've seen, not yet. Not until I rise from the dead. And they don't understand. Rise from the dead? Jesus, how, how do you think this is all going to go? Where is this leading? They don't get the full picture yet. Why is he talking about dying? One of the reasons we read this story every year on this Sunday is because in the Gospels, this is a transition moment. That right around this time of the Transfiguration, the Gospels start turning towards a different mountain, Mount Calvary, right? The Mount of Crucifixion, where Jesus starts talking about his death and resurrection. And we're in that moment as a church. We've, we've been in Epiphany, seeing the glory of God revealed. But now we're turning our attention towards Holy Week, towards the cross, as we enter this week into Lent. Why does Jesus come down from the mountain? Not just to reveal his glory. He'll do that again on the cross. He comes down from the mountain to share his glory. He comes for you, and he comes for me. He comes for Peter and James and John and all of us. And when he conquers sin and death on the cross, this vision of glory becomes a gift to us so that we can share in it too. The vision is realized in the valley. How do we share in the glory of God? The Father says, listen to Jesus. And what does Jesus say in Mark chapter 8? If anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Transformation, life change, doesn't just happen in the mountaintop moment. It happens in the valley of ordinary, mundane life. But that vision of glory can spur us on, can keep us moving forward. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. And we, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Same word for transfigured. We are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. Your labors are not in vain. Your ordinary struggle against sin is not in vain. The mundane moments of your day and with work or, or family or school, it's not in vain. Keep your eyes on the glory of Jesus as you take up your cross and you will be transformed. And so let's talk practically about this season that we're entering because Lent, Lent is about intentionally carrying our cross in the valley all the while holding on to this vision of glory. And I encourage you in the next few days as we approach Ash Wednesday to think about how is the Lord calling you to enter into this season? How is the Lord calling you to take up your cross? And don't think just individually, but think corporately. How is the church taking up the cross during this season? Traditionally, the church has thought of Lenten disciplines in these three categories. Fasting, prayer, and giving. And if you wonder why these three, I mean, go back and read the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll, you'll hear Jesus saying, when you fast, and when you pray, and when you give, it's his assumption that these are normal parts of the spiritual life. And so let me say a brief word about each of these, because we have folks who are kind of new to this, this tradition. So why do we fast? We fast to empty ourselves physically so that we can be filled up spiritually empty ourselves physically so we can be filled up spiritually. You can fast by not eating or simply by eating less. And the two days to do this would be this week on Ash Wednesday and again on Good Friday. Just those two days. But I would encourage you to consider continuing that practice throughout Lent on Wednesdays or Fridays they're going without food or, or just simply eating less on those days, depending on what you need to do for your own health. A related practice is to abstain. And so that's where you and your family might choose to go without comfort foods like sweets or alcohol. Again, we're, we're emptying ourselves physically so we can be filled up spiritually. During Lent, we also pray with more intentionality. We set our minds on the glory of Jesus. And so prayer is our theme as a church throughout Lent, and so I won't say much here, but you could consider just one small way to set aside a little more time for prayer. Attention to God. And finally, we give, and we give money in order to free ourselves from our attachment to it. We give in order to increase our love for our neighbor. And so we give generously, and we especially give to the poor. We remember that everything we have comes from the Lord, and He has promised to satisfy our every need. 
And our Good Friday gift is one way we do this here at, at this church. So talk to the Lord about what, the Lord, what He is asking you to do. And join with the church, not just the church here locally, but the church globally, as she participates in these disciplines. Let me just give one, one short uh, word there. It could be that going into this Lent, you are feeling quite depleted. Maybe you have a caretaker role in your family, and you're like, dude, I'm living Lent just all year round. It could be that just in the state of your mental well-being, you're struggling uh, with depression or anxiety in a significant way. You don't need to be a hero during Lent. But do something. Ask the Lord, what is one small way for me to press into my vulnerability before you? And then take all of your labors during the day, all of your caretaking role, and just give that to the Lord. This is my worship. As you do these practices throughout Lent, someone, maybe a, a child, maybe a friend, is going to say, why? Why are you doing this? As my kids were asking, why can't we eat the Oreos after Wednesday? And you could say, you could talk about the physical benefits of fasting. You could talk about, you know, the mental health benefits of prayer. But you could also say this, why am I doing these things? For the glory. I'm doing these things for glory. Because I've gotten a taste of the glory of God in Jesus, but I want more. I want it to pervade my whole being, not just in the next life, but already participating in eternal life here and now. Not the personal glory of showing how rigorous my spiritual life can be. Not just an emotional experience. I want something better. I want to be transformed. I want to become like Jesus. I want to share in the glory that only he can give. That's what you could say when somebody asks you. This Lent, may the vision of glory lead you forward. The glory of the only Son of the Father who endured the cross to share that glory with you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.